Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tussaud. And I'm Ann Friedman. Hi, Ann Friedman. Hello, Amina Tussaud. In these troubled times, in this strange moment, <laughs> in, these, <laughs> in these difficult days... <laughs> I'm like every website I'm trying to buy clothes on due to COVID-19. <laughs> also, literally every email, I feel like every every professional email has some equivalent of that. And it's like, uh, are you talking about the pandemic? Are you talking about the fact that some people only started talking about race right now? Are you talking about both of those things? Like what's happening? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's hard to tell which one is due to COVID-19 and which one is due to racism. <laughs> yeah. Due to rampant and not at all new racism. (laughs) Today, we are not going to talk about COVID-19, but we are going to talk about race, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, in a way, in a way that is like maybe a little more pointed than we are frequently talking about race. Like this is going to be a race episode TM, which was, you know, not planned to coincide with these difficult times necessarily. But um yeah, definitely. Race. Call your girlfriend. It's time you had the talk. Give your reasons. Say it's not her fault. But you just met somebody new. I mean, guess what? If you are um, an awake person in this country, um, you know, <laughs> uh, race has always been happening. So it is not a it is not new to uh, summer 2020 specifically. Uh, yes. And, you know, if you listen to last week's episode about stretching in friendship, that is a metaphor that is helpful for a lot of challenges that can crop up between pairs of friends. But uh We also write about race outside the context of that chapter in our book, in part because um, while it is challenging and it does sort of require certain types of effort and vulnerability, it is not the same thing as other stretches that exist within friendships. I know we're joking about the, uh, like, in these unprecedented race times framing, but a lot of times when we get asked about this chapter of the book about interracial friendship, people are framing it in terms of, air quotes, this moment. Um, And I think it is very important to us to not frame it as in or of a moment. Right. If it's a new moment for you, welcome. It's nice to have you here. Um, Take a seat. Uh, Some of us have been here for a long time. Right. And also heads up, it's not a moment. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is the truth no one wants to talk about. Woosa. Yeah. A long time ago, you and I um, fell in love with this Really a review of the movie Ted 2. Um, <laughs> that is I, not where I thought that sentence was going. That, that is exactly where that sentence is going. Um, <laughs> you and I, I, I believe, have seen Ted and Ted 2 more than is like legally required to see. Oh, which is but, to say at least once. <laughs> but today's, today's guest um, on the podcast, Wesley Morris, who um, is a cultural critic and just an amazing human being, wrote this like really incisive review of Ted 2, like back in 2015, I believe. 
And in the review, there like contained this like beautiful nugget of information that I remember like imprinted on us a long time ago. And then, um, you know, has has really been uh, like the foundation of the chapter that we wrote about race in our book. And so Wesley invokes this like image of the trap door of racism, um, which I maybe I'll just read. I'll just like read the review um, or this point in the review, because uh, I think yes. it's just it's better. Okay. Please remember, this is a review about a movie about uh, um, a psychotic teddy bear. Teddy bear. Here and Mark Wahlberg, right? And Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> like, it's so racist um, is what you need to know. But um, anyway, for people of color, some aspect of friendship with white people involves an awareness that you could be dropped through a trap door of racism at any moment by a slip of the tongue or at a campus party or in a legislative campaign. But it is not always anticipated. You don't expect the young white man who's been seated alongside you in a house of worship to take your life because you're black. Nor do you expect that a movie about an obscene teddy bear would invoke a sexual stereotype forced upon you the way Kunta Quinte was forced to become Toby. So that's the context that you need to know about um, the trapdoor of racism. Mm. And I think one reason this metaphor has always really stayed with me is because it is it is so visceral. You know, I think that um, that feeling of having your feet firmly planted on the ground and that feeling of security and safety um, and then thinking about like what happens when that's like like whisked out from under you. Something about that is it's the fact that it is like a feeling metaphor and not like a visual metaphor um, has always been for me part of its power and 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 part of why um, it has stuck with me so much. I mean, it's also just perfect. It's, you know, it's like racism as Acme cartoon. Like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you're like, I'm just here to watch the obscene teddy bear movie. I did not expect for racism to happen. And now I have to contend with it, which I think if you uh, like me are a black person who um, knows white people intimately, that is a very recognizable kind of, um, of feeling. You're just, you're like, I'm just here for, I'm just here to be myself. I'm just here for the party. And the next thing you know, woof, the door opens and here we are. Yeah. And on the flip side of that, I definitely think white people and and certainly white people in interracial friendships are afflicted by this. I'm just here to be who I am feeling with very different results. Right. You know, like, um, hey, I'm just me and uh, I don't actually have to be on the lookout for things that might be making my friend who isn't white feel uncomfortable or I don't need to be watching like a hawk for the ways that pervasive racism is going to creep into this situation because I can just be me and my friend can just be her and we can just be friends in the specificity and beautiful bliss of this friendship. And guess what? <laughs> Not possible. Um, and I I don't know, the process of writing this chapter in some ways paralleled writing the rest of the book where we really had to come up with some terminology. We we obviously credit Wesley with the trapdoor, but there are some other things that have come up in our relationship and the way we relate to each other um, through this kind of prism of race that we needed other language for. Because um, guess what? There is not a huge body of work about interracial friendship. There is not. So I'm I'm finding it all like really fascinating, especially because we've talked about this on on other interviews, you know, but this, um, you know, the you and I, I think, have a good understanding now of how race is playing out, um, you know, in our friendship. 
But I think that in the podcast, we never really address the fact that also race dynamics are at play with the audience. Oh, completely, completely. And, you know, in the audience for everything we do, you know, this chapter was excerpted by the cut. Um, so, you know, if you have not yet committed to the book and want to check it out, you can find it at thecut.com. But um, in an extremely telling example of the ways that our work is received differently because of our race, after that excerpt ran, I really received crickets, you know, like nothing. Like maybe, you know, a couple of emails that were like, hey, I'm white and this was helpful to me, or like, hey, shared this with a friend. But um, you received like an absolutely disgusting, hateful deluge. Like it it really could not be starker. I mean, yeah, it's like, a, that's the reality of my life in writing. It is the reality of my life with a lot of the people who listen to this show as well. And, um, you know, I it's... It's like one of those things I'm like, I'm just filing it under, uh, you know, the box for things that I consider interesting. And I was like, that's an interesting data point. Like this is this dynamic is really uh, wow. What a what a thing. Yeah. I want to invoke this Pat Parker poem that we quote in the book that has also come up a lot in conversations that I've had on my own about the book with people in my life and also in our interviews. Um, we'll link to it in the show notes. It's called For the White Person Who Wants to Know How to Be My Friend. And the first two lines are, the first thing you do is to forget that I'm Black. Second, you must never forget that I'm Black. I mean, really in every situation, like this this scenario about um, the feedback we've gotten about this chapter excerpt is a perfect one, you know? Um, Forget that you're Black. 100%. The two of us wrote this equally. We are both invested in this. Like, we are collaborators. Um, the specifics of your brain and your ideas and you as a as a person are all over this. Um, cool. Yes. And then the, like, you must never forget that I'm Black. Like, right, as we release this into the world, the world is not letting us forget that you and I are of two different races as we talk about these issues publicly. And so it is incumbent upon me to also not forget that. Ooh, thank you, Pat Parker. Um, always. For everything. Always, yeah. always <laughs> for everything, Pat Parker, like, truly. Um, well, today's episode um you know features an interview with wesley morris who is amazing Um, pulitzer prize winning wesley morris (laughs) i know pulitzer prize winning wesley morris amazing podcast co-host wesley morris handsome man wesley morris just go on and on and on and on about how amazing wesley is you know but this interview also was done over a year ago at this point right or um definitely last summer yeah i mean it was an interview for the book yeah, it was an interview for the book. So uh, it's been a minute, um, but uh, it is still uh, very, 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 very resonant, as uh, as you will hear. Hello, Wesley Morris. Thank you for being on Call Your Girlfriend. Thank you for having me. I I, I cannot believe this is happening to me. This is like a dream come true. <laughs> let me tell you. Dream bigger, Wesley. Dream bigger. <laughs> oh man. Well, I really wanted to have you on today because there's so there's so many things I want to talk about. But namely, I want to talk about one really funny review that you wrote for the movie Ted Two, which uh, unfortunate, mm. which unfortunately Anne and I have seen probably more than one time. 
Um, really? Oh, definitely. Like, don't you have this? In the canon of stoner movies, you don't need them to be good. <laughs> you just need to be like an appropriate amount of high. And then there needs to be like mm-hmm. enough nonsense that happens that your brain feels like it's following along. And unfortunately, yes. like Ted has all of the kind of nonsense, like Ted one, two, whatever that franchise does. It has enough of the nonsense that like the idle, like marijuana brain is actually like very happy, unfortunately. Mm. I can see that it's about a bear who is basically living in in a real world with Mark Wahlberg. And I think most of the movie was probably written and or made with people on some drug. I mean, you have to be stoned to like watch a thing with a talking bear in it. Like, are you kidding me? Uh-huh. That's not the Charmin uh-huh. bear. But anyway, in the review, you wrote about this concept that you call the trapdoor of racism that people of color are dropped into if they are in friendship with white people in general. And it's a thing that Anne and I have glommed onto over the last couple of years because we thought that the image was really, it was really perfect. For people of color, some aspect of friendship with white people involves an awareness that you could be dropped through a trapdoor of racism at any moment by a slip of the tongue or at a campus party or in a legislative campaign. And it's just something that has really, really stuck with us for the last couple of years. And I'm just wondering if you could expand on it or talk about it a little bit more. I think that there is a kind of comfort that you as a non-white person can feel around white people, especially when you when they're a part of your life. They're a real significant, meaningful part of your life. There's a comfort that you have in these relationships that is somewhat contingent upon not going there. Now, wherever there is... <laughs> everybody <laughs> is, has their boundary. To, right. Everybody has a boundary. And wherever your there is, is the place where their relationship just kind of tacitly knows not to go. But there will be some incident. And normally, it is a thing that is beyond both parties' control. Um, I'm thinking specifically about like an incident that doesn't involve your white friend, but it involves the white friend's friends or the white friend's family or a circumstance in which you're experiencing racism or general unpleasantness that tips into racism. And the white friend is kind of like, uh, I think you non-white friend are overreacting to whatever is happening right now. Um, That's a for example. And then there's this blatant like, I'm going to say something to you or do something to you that comports perfectly with with an entire history of racism. And you in that moment as the person who has been dropped through this figurative trap door are kind of, you know, it's funny because as I'm talking about this in this way, I'm also envisioning the sunken place. (laughs) Um, As I'm about to say, you're looking up uh, at the situation that you've been dropped through. I think that what happens is you are now forced to reevaluate your relationship with this person based on an incident that in some cases can seem kind of innocent. I'm thinking a lot right now. I've been thinking for like more than a month about Joe Biden. Oh, man. Um, Oh, man. Talk about the national trap door of racism opening underneath all of us. Yes. Yes. And I will say that it, it isn't in Joe Biden's case like it act of actual racism right um right like he's not wearing a hood he's not like southern gop person like telling us insane things but yet here we are 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it's worse than that in some ways because he is trading on a kind of comfort with black people that is uncomfortable for me. And I think it's uncomfortable for a lot of people. And I think the longer this campaign goes on, the less comfortable people are going to be with him. But he gave a speech. I think it was, I don't remember if it was during the 2016 campaign. He says, if you vote for, I'm going to say Trump because I think it was 2016. If you vote for Trump, these people are going to have you in chains. <laughs> is how he put it. Do you remember this speech? I know exactly what you're talking about and I am dying. And I'm just like Joe. Joe Biden. Joe Biden, vice president of the United States of America. It was in 2012 and he was like, and, and Mitt Romney got so mad about it. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I am, I'm, I'm, I knew, I knew I was close or close enough. Yeah. No, that was wild. But yeah, it's, you know, it's like the, he's just like too close. He's too close. And he, you know, like Barack Obama, he feels like gave him transitive properties to just talk to Mm. us all sorts Mm -hmm. of crazy. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. this is what happens. Right. And almost like you hear the excitement in his voice when he says it, like, Oh, like I know something about you. Like I know fear about you. Maybe it has escaped you, you know, or just like, it's just like a little too thrilling and sexy and you hear it and you're like, what is this nigga talking about? Like, this is crazy. Yes. Well, I would say, you know, the, the other funny thing about Joe Biden, of course, is that he is an appealing person. He is a person who seems like, once you like if he isn't holding up your Amtrak train to get on in, in, in Wilmington to go to D.C., he seems otherwise like a potentially wonderful person to like spend 20 minutes to 45 minutes with. And I think that that you can kind of get seduced into looking the other way when something like that chain speech happens or when you're like represented with his actual voting record on any number of issues, right? So the trapdoor for me isn't, it isn't just the record per se, if we're going to like move away from the speeches, although the speeches are one thing, but just looking at his record, right? If we just focus on what Kamala Harris brought up during that debate um, in June, so Kamala Harris is basically like, look, I just want to hear right now that you that you understand that all the busing legislation that you voted against, and it wasn't just one thing. He was basically an anti-busser that the entire time anything came through the Senate that he was supposed to support, he, he didn't do it. But what I would say about his reaction when she asked him very simply, I'm, I'm going to misquote what exactly she asked him. But basically, she was like, do you think that what you did was wrong right now in 2019? Can you tell me, was it a thing that you are proud of or embarrassed by? And he wouldn't answer. And he got he, the umbrage he took was like, how dare you bring this up? I know. I mean, he got Barack really, Obama, Barack he got Obama, really Barack huffy. Obama. He got really huffy. Right, he yes. was holding the lectern like it was a flotation device. It was like, you know, (laughs) but actually, like, I'm really glad that you bring up those two, because the thing I think that made that exchange powerful is that they are a little bit more than colleagues. Like, you can tell that there was a personal Mm -hmm. rapport there the whole Mm -hmm. time he was Mm -hmm. looking at her like he was about to risk it all to, like, be with her because she's so beautiful. He, like, clearly Mm. is into her. You know, like, that subtext Mm. was there. And clearly, like, they are on very friendly terms. Like, I think that if this had just been, like, political sparring, 
it would have felt a little different. But the fact that she had, yeah, that's but the fact that she attacked perceptive. him, she attacked him on this basis of like, hey, I like you, we are friendly, but like you did a thing that you know, like forget the politics of it, you hurt me personally. Mm-hmm, was something mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. I just I thought was re- that was the most powerful part of the exchange and to bring it back into like a space of you know like in the book we are talking a lot about intimate partner relationship like serious friendships I think that part of why that that metaphor of the trapdoor is so powerful it's because no matter how long you have known someone no matter how long you have known a white person I think that for most people of color or at least I can't speak for most people of color but I will say that among the black people that I know, there is just this like very palpable understanding that no matter how much you know them, you like know their politics, you know, like they've been to your house a million times. They like know your grandma. Mm-hmm. They've eaten mm-hmm. the food at your house, mm-hmm. like the whole thing mm-hmm. that there is still a possibility that they're like this, this thing is going to happen between you. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it just, and I think that part of it is because, you know, racism really hurts on a personal level, but part of it is that, well, you know, like, hello, here's the problem with like systemic oppression, right? Like no matter how well-meaning any of our white friends are, there's still part of the system that oppresses us. So there's nothing that you can do about that, right? It's, it's personal and not personal at the same time. It doesn't take the sting away, but it's just that like that knowing sense of danger where you're like, I can know this person for a hundred years and yet this moment is a moment to brace for. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. It isn't even like a thing you brace for. It's so casual. <laughs> it's so You're right. You're right. It, it isn't even like I'm about to get hit with a truck. It's like, no, you're not going to get hit with a truck. Like you're going to have a drop of mustard fall on your white pants. Like it's not even, it's like a nothing thing, especially to the person who says it. I have a, for example, I, am friends with a guy i haven't known him for that long but we had he's a white guy like really great we're friends i flew into chicago uh where he lives and i had to do some work and we met up and um i had mentioned that i was flying over i flew into midway and he looked at me and he was like oh you like the south side (laughs) (laughs) and i'm like well I don't know. I mean, yes, but what do you mean? I mean, it just had this like DL down and dirty. Oh, you like the South Side. I can just see the glint in his eye like a ching. Like we're we're on yeah, the same page yeah. now. We're, we're speaking the same lingo now. I just, I don't know. I just, but I filed it away. I'm like, okay, this is a thing to keep in mind for my future uh, engagements with this person. But it's like, if he says this and I'm like, well, you know, friend, what are you, uh, what are you trying to imply about the South side and me? And he's like, uh, I don't know why you, why you got to go there? Like, why, why even ask? Like, uh, I don't, I don't know. I'm just saying you like, uh, you like, you like Midway. I don't know what to say. What do you want me to do? You like the South side of Chicago. Okay. Geographically. <laughs> 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 like you just, those are the coordinates that you are happy in. Well, you know, I like a thing that I've really struggled with in writing this with Anne, who, who is my white friend, you know, but also like more than a friend is it's mm. really confronted me a lot with my own evolution and my own understanding of you know, the the comfort and discomfort that I feel being in an interracial friendship. For example, mm-hmm. something that I am not proud of, but is like 100% a part of my, of my life is that I had always thought 
that if you were going to happen to be friends with white people, not that you needed it, but if you were going to be friends Mm -hmm. with them, that like, if there's a scale of racism that's like runs one is like, they accidentally call you by another black person's name and 10, Mm. 10 is like full blown Trump nationalism that if you were going to have white people in your life, whether you were dating them or you were friends with them or you were even working with them, that a one or a two is something that you were just going to have to deal with. Not saying yes. like not saying that you had to like, you know, like be excited about it, but it was like, okay, like this is something that you should just prepare for. And mm-hmm. um, when it happens, you know, like you got to tone down like how outraged you are because we've been new. This was going to be, this is like, this is just a part of life. And it's really been a trip, like getting older and being like, you know what? Like I, one, no, that is, that is awful. That is like an awful expectation to have. And two, also just, you know, really, really contending with the fact that like, for me, I can call out like Twitter, like somebody's racist to me on Twitter. I call up their job. Somebody like is racist to me on the street. Like I will throw something at them. Like if you are a stranger, I can handle myself. But really realizing that like where I'm the most disarmed is the closer it gets to home, you know, where I'm always Mm -hmm. like, oh, like Mm -hmm. what's like what's going on here? Not saying that I don't have a response, but really of a like, okay, this has now introduced awkwardness into our relationship. And how do we move? Like, how do you deal with it and then move forward from it? That's something that I'm still wrapping my mind around. Yeah, I think that one of the interesting things is there's always... Not always, but I mean, there's going to be some discrepancy between your your values as a person with a race. And, you know, if we're talking about white people, certain white people's values of themselves that they carry of, of, of people who have a race. Right. And I think the more that the person that you're friends with understands that they're white makes it it's just that much easier for you guys to talk about the the differences between you when they come up and it's not so much that the differences between you have to be race oriented right like but at some point if you're i mean if you're a black person in america the odds are if you're going to have an intimate relationship with a white person the subject of race is going to come up because you're introducing it (laughs) (laughs) like there's going to be a thing that comes up that you want to talk to your friend about and you know, if if you're lucky, you've got a friend who is reasonably conversant or curious or has some feelings about this that are not, they don't even have to align with how you feel. But there's a conversation that you guys can have and he understands that you as a black person live in a slightly different America than he or she does. And I think that if you guys can talk about that, You've got a healthy relationship no matter what, and you're not dealing with the odds of you being dropped through a trap door are much lower. I have another friend who has the same name of the friend in the South Side example, by the way. Uh, <laughs> your friends I'm not going to name your the friends name. friends with all white dudes named Mike? What's up? <laughs> it's, it's really interesting, but this guy, it's come up a lot over the years. But the first inkling that I had that this was going to be a problem if we were going to stay friends was when he really didn't get, and I know lots of people, I know lots of black people have a person in their life of all races, really, who just didn't get what the big deal with the Trayvon Martin shooting was. Mm. Like, why 
what is the big deal? I mean, he clearly shouldn't have been in that neighborhood. He was clearly trespassing. And George Zimmerman, those are the laws. He was allowed to carry around the gun and, and shoot this kid. And we don't know what happened and why was he on top of him? Something probably happened. And I think George Zimmerman was just defending himself. And also setting that aside, the verdict is what induced this conversation. And the verdict, he's just like, I don't understand. Like the jury said what it said. Case closed. Why are you so upset? Like, this has nothing to do with you. It's like this kid probably shouldn't have been in the neighborhood. The jury spoke. He was allowed to do it. It's totally fine. Let's just go have dinner. And I'm like, hmm. I don't know if we can have dinner. Right. <laughs> I think this is our dinner. I think we're going to mm. eat this conversation right now. Mm. So, okay, here's my point. If you live in this country, here's my point with this particular story. If you live in this country, I think you have, no matter what your race is, I think like in the same way that the, the, the stupid citizenship form for people who are like coming to this country hoping to get a green card or actual citizenship has these like stupid trivia night questions about like, you know, what year was the Declaration of Independence signed? <laughs> no, I need you. I need you to tell me what the Wilmot Proviso was. I, I need you to, to tell, tell me what about the Dred Scott decision, because I feel like the history that we get taught in this country is all about trivia night and not about like what happens when George Zimmerman gets his verdict. <laughs> and I don't want to have to give somebody a 400 year history lesson on why this is upsetting to happen again. Because that person doesn't want a history lesson. I know. And in a weird way, like, <sighs> there's no productive way to say to a person, let me sit you down and walk you through, I don't know, well, we're not a 272 years of, of, of why this moment, this here moment matters so much to so many people. Well, And what continuum it's on. Well, but here's the deal, right? It's like, we're not a racial education service, right? Like... White people always benefit from having friends of color and specifically black friends because yes. they get to have yes. aha moments yes. about race through knowing us like all of the time. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. see like we see point. no such benefit. Like I <laughs> there is nothing that I have learned about whiteness that I had already didn't know that like this a friend is a really that a friend has like point, taught me. Amina. Like there's just you know, mm. I'm like, sorry, I also already listened to Alanis Morissette. Like, I know y'all have, like, rich white people money that's hidden. Like, it's like, I already know. Like, I don't learn anything. But yet, yeah, like, they learn a lot from me. So I think, you know, like, in thinking about this, the, the reason that I'm bringing it up is because, like you said earlier, the race always gets introduced by the black friend. And the reason that that mm -hmm. irks me now, it's because that is, like, an assumption that, like, the black friend is the other and I was like, no, mm -hmm. whiteness, like mm -hmm. whiteness is also a race. Like if you choose to be in all it white spaces, sure is. that is a racialized space. Like it's not a mm -hmm. neutral space. So it's not like they're just like driving a neutral rolling around. And then, you know, like the black friend <laughs> is the stop sign that you have to like engage for. It's like, no, no, like you're already here. Like all white spaces are racialized spaces. And so whether you talk about it or not, like you guys are also experiencing race. And that is just something where, like, for me, it's become, like, a huge sticking point where I was like, no, like, I don't have to be the one to introduce race, like, all of the time. Like, if I'm the one that is constantly doing it in a relationship, it's telling me everything I need to know about that relationship now. Yeah, yeah. I was talking to Nicole Hannah-Jones about this very subject, like, a couple months ago. 
And it basically was about the ways in which the the presumption of neutrality mm-hmm. is 99% of the problem. The room temperature of race in America defaults to white. All right? the time. And so if you go into a restaurant and you're the only black person who comes in, like, it isn't it that you've walked into a neutral space because the moment you get there... Neutrality goes out no, the window. You walked right? into like a white right. supremacist space <laughs> that was like right. <laughs> doing its thing before you got there. Right. Okay. So you know how I was saying I don't want to give the history lesson every time that I'm about to have a racial fight. But you, so have, to. Catch the you have to. Up. You have to. Right. You have to. I have to catch the white person up and I have to give them all the tools. Like, here, let me give you all the equipment that you're going to need to basically play this sport with me. For the next hour, I'll give you your tennis racket, your baseball bat, your basketball. You got to get your padding, your helmet. I'm going to give it your goggles. I'm giving it all to you. You put it on. Once you figure out what to do with all that stuff, then you can come to me and and we can like play racism fight. But this person needs a head start to be able to like understand why I'm upset. So I feel like the thing that has to happen is you need enough people who don't need me to give them or need any black person to give them all the equipment. But Wesley, we don't have to give them the equipment. The equipment is available for free. Right. The pads have been there. The goggles right. have been I there. Know. They could have picked it. it up. No, I, I hear you and I'm 100% with you. But what I'm saying is I think that to your point, it is morally not incumbent on black people to do that work. And it is infrastructurally impossible for black people to do that work because there's a whole history of us trying to do the work. And look what we get. Right. We don't get elected to governor. We don't get elected (laughs) to like mayor. Like they let us have one president and they're not going to let us have another one for 400 years. So like, you know what I'm saying? So my point, I just feel I just feel like there is a way because I there are white people in my life who are more than equipped and perfectly comfortable saying to like to the my friends of my other friends of the world about like the Trayvon Martin case. I don't know what planet you've been living on, but this is this is how racism works. I, as a non-black person, can tell you because as a white person, I understand my role in perpetuating these problems. And you, my friend, are a prime example of the perpetuation. Um, I just feel like maybe at some point before we get to that restaurant, Amina, maybe that's what's happening. I mean, I just, you know, the the thing about it that's so, the Trayvon Martin thing is, like, it's really hitting me in the gut because I'm remembering exactly where I was when that verdict was announced, and I was definitely the only black person at this, like, dinner party. Um, There was a Mm. person there that I didn't know was Latino the whole time I thought he was, uh, (laughs) he was white, and I think he thinks he was white, too. But when the ver- but when yeah. the verdict was announced, he was the only person to say something to me. Everybody else just carried on. But you know, mm. it's the thing about the thing. Like the reason that I keep bringing it back to friendship is because, like, I think that we're all a little bit equipped in some ways or form. Like I would say, if you're friends with like woke white people or whatever people who think that they're doing the work, we're all equipped to talk about you know like race as it happens in the news. It's like everybody has something to say about the president. You'll probably if you know if if like a black person gets shot and it's reported in the news, you'll probably get a text message that will irk you depending on how it is constructed. But the thing that you know what I mean, (laughs) but the thing about the thing about it that I keep coming back to is that if we can't talk about like this kind of stuff, the stuff that happens in the news in in the constructive way, 
you like don't trust that when the apocalypse come and it's coming that these are the people that are going to fight for you you know what i mean like you just see it you just like see it and you're like oh Mm -hmm. like i actually cannot like like would you hide me in your house like probably not like because you don't you know like like i don't need some sort of apocalypse scenario we're already living through it right now but the other thing that like if we don't talk about the news well what does it mean when it's like your white friend that is causing you pain you know, like then we mm-hmm. have zero base mm-hmm. vocabulary for that. I, all of this is swirling in my head. And at the same time, I'm like, I have white people in my life. I love a lot. And their grandmother then and they're not going anywhere. And here mm-hmm. we are. Well, I mean, would you hide me in your house is deep. It's deep, right? Like, would you would you house me? Like, would you, what kind of abolitionist would you be? Would you even be an abolitionist? I mean, everything that you're doing right now in the Trump era is what you would do if, like, shit hit the fan even more. You know what I mean? I'm like, we literally have children Mm -hmm. in cages that are still in cages. Nobody's, like, freeing them and doing anything for them. And I'm like, talk less of me, like a bougie black in Brooklyn. So, like, what? It's, It's wild. It's wild. Let's take a break. Can I do something really nuts tell right me, now? Tell me. Do your most nuttiest thing ever here. <laughs> I want to talk about Ted 2 for a second. Uh, yes, please. The movie that started it all. Because I feel like it's really important to like, I mean, to just talk about the way racism works in that movie. Because it doesn't come, it comes entirely from a place of foreignness and and misunderstanding and presumption and and probably over familiarity in in some weird way but it 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 does have a racial value system right and at the top of the value system is somebody like Tom Brady and at the bottom is is any black male carrying a penis and and sperm and I don't know how at some point if you're not if you're a sentient human being like I mean I'm not saying that Mark Mark Wahlberg necessarily is given all the things we know about Mark Wahlberg. Mark but, Wahlberg literally bashed like an Asian shopkeeper's head in <laughs> um, like like bashed in an Asian person because of you know like thinking he was entitled to do that. So I feel comfortable saying a lot yes. about Mark Wahlberg. Yes I, and as well you should. And I feel like at no point, I mean, did Morgan Freeman, who was in Ted 2, did he not see the whole script? Did he, like, was he, what, like, what are his feelings about having appeared in the movie? What about Lonnie Love? Wesley, plays this all the time whenever black actors do movies like this. All of the time. And I know that that's a, it's a shitty place to go to. But, like, these people all have money and power. What? Yeah. And so I, I feel like... The way that the racism works in that movie is so unfair because it's all below the belt, right? It assumes in some ways that black people don't even exist as a movie-going constituency. Mm-hmm. And that 
if they did see it, well, that's their problem because we're just making a joke. And the joke is not about you as a black person. The joke is about sperm and the Kardashians. And I mean, there are any number of ways that if you if you had a like Wesley and, and Amina Senate hearing where you drag Seth MacFarlane <laughs> in to defend to defend Ted too, like what would his defense be? If you like laid out the case, if you like Kamala Harris or, or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez styled or even Jerry Nadler, like if you just laid out, although I hope not, not Jerry I hope Nadler. not. I mean, he... Well, oh you know God, what you know Jerry. what his defense would be, though, Wesley. You know what his defense would be. <laughs> he would just say that he didn't think that you would see it, and now and and now yeah. that you have seen it, he is sorry that you saw it. But it's already out in the world, and the hurt is there. And also, there is always a presumption that we can handle it. You know what I mean? It's like if people actually cared about black people's feelings, they wouldn't do half of the shit that they did to them. But instead, they're like, "Oh, you're used to this. It's not as bad as slavery, so I guess you can handle it." Well, yeah, I mean, there's so <laughs> it's there's there's such a trajectory upon which you can like a rating system that you can evaluate the the harshness of your offense. But I actually I don't know that he would necessarily even say that. I think that it's possible because whenever you're confronted, whenever I experience a person who has committed one of these offenses, and I think Ted too, it might be. I think it's one of the most appalling movies I've ever seen on the subject of not it's not the subject is not race, but like it it involves race in a way that has nothing to do with the movie itself. And that's the craziest part, right? Like this is a movie where like if you took all the race stuff out and all the racism out, you'd have the exact same movie. None of it hinges on blackness or black people or race or anything. You'd say you'd have the exact same plot, the exact same movie, the most of the exact same jokes. But there are so many jokes aimed squarely at black men in particular and like black male sexuality in particular that you you begin to learn something about the people who made the movie and what their issues might be with themselves in some way. And Ooh. You know, I'm a person who kind of thinks that Seth MacFarlane does have like a sexuality thing that he needs to work out. And and that like a lot of that is bound up in his whiteness and his awareness of his whiteness and his sort of low opinion, I would say, of his whiteness in some ways. And his like equally like his sort of um defensive displacement of that low low opinion of his whiteness on to black people. Mm-hmm. Um and I just, I feel like, you know, I, the movies are great because it's a great space to work out all, I mean, art is a great space to work out all of your issues. But on the other hand, my feeling about that is like, leave me out of it. If you aren't going to directly involve me in like the working out of your problems, because the movie isn't working this stuff out. It's laughing at it and it's making a problem of the object of your neurosis. Oof. That's that's so real. <laughs> so real. Um, can I ask you about something else that is like really top yeah. of mind for me? We have been writing a lot about the subject of friendship breakups 
and mm. you know like friend divorces we've all had like very significant ones and a thing that happens mm-hmm. when you're writing a book about friendship is that you start re-examining all of your own relationships and thinking about oh that relationship that i you know that person that i said was toxic like was it actually toxic or was that or, or was i really just running away from having a hard conversation or did i handle did i handle some of my breakups well um, I'm just wondering, mm. like, if you have anything to say about the topic of, like, you know, friendships that that are broken and, you know, repairing them or holding on to friendships that, um, you know, like almost completely broke down. Huh. Well, I mean, I might start crying if I talk about this. Um, uh, we also don't have to talk about it if it's hard. <laughs> n- no, 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 no. It's it's fine. It's fine. I'm 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 pretty much. I'm pretty much okay with it. It is just, it is still mysterious to me. And uh, this is a person who's, I mean, I've known him since I was 17 years old. And um, he decided about a year, well, he decided it two years ago, but then like made it official uh, more than a little bit more than a year ago that we were not going to be friends anymore. And he explained it to me, although I don't really understand. I don't understand why it happened. Um, but basically he felt like I wasn't a good enough friend to him in a moment where he needed like better friendship. And I hear that and I apologized for it, but it was too late for him. He was done. And there was nothing I could say in the like <laughs> the 25 minutes or 35 minutes or whatever that he gave me to to defend myself and to like make clear to him that, I do love him and he is my friend and you know, it'll be weird for me to just be friends with your wife and your kids um, and not with you. And how do we negotiate that? Um, But I think that the breakup, I think losing him in my life uh, was really hard. And there is an element, if I'm being totally honest, there is an element of, of race in our in the demise of our relationship in some ways. I don't think it was explicitly the incident that incited this thinking and this reevaluation that he did about our relationship was not was not brought on by race necessarily. But I think the expectation that he had of me um it it was sort of fueled a little bit by his being a white male and my being a black male. And all of the ways in which he's used his white maleness um, as a as a key in a lock for me, mm. who didn't have a key, you mm. know. Um, and he, I think that there was an understanding that, like, by virtue of his having a key and us being so close, that I too had a key that I could have used for him when he needed somebody to unlock some stuff for him. And I don't think of myself as having a key. Almost for the very reasons we've been talking about in this conversation, we we are not a key having people, black people. We don't have the we keys have no we have no has. keys. We have no keys. We you know we merely got copies made recently. Some of us, <laughs> but you know it's 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 not the key. It's not the key that you can take to to get copied. So no, no. It's this is that master right, do not copy like, key. That's, it that's is, what we have. This is not the one you take that's to the hardware store. This is the one when you take it to the hardware store and try to get a copy. They're like, sir, 
It clearly do says not co- do not duplicate that's on this key. Correct. It's, that's correct. No. That's us. Um, so I think that there was this this sort of... There was this misunderstanding about who I was in relation to him. I mean, as a person, as Wesley, and also as a as a black person. And I think that... And I don't mean that like I have low self-esteem because I don't. And I don't think I just don't comport myself in the way that he comports himself in in the wider world. You know, I'm a charismatic person. I have a big personality. I love myself, but I make no assumptions about who I am in relation to anybody else when it comes to what I'm entitled Mm -hmm. to do. I'm more of a rights person, (laughs) not an entitlements person. Do I have the right to do yeah. this is separate from can I just do it? Yeah. Um, and I think that that became when this incident happened, it just exposed this discrepancy in self-perception that I think for him at least was untenable because he assumed that I have a power that he knows infrastructurally. This is the thing about him. He knows he knows enough to know that infrastructurally I don't have the power that he has, but I think he thinks that he gave me some of that power by virtue of having him in my life and that I didn't use the power he gave me to help him was just a bridge too far for him. It was a waste of of giving me like a copy of his key. Do you think that some of it also is because, you know, like friendship is just a relationship where everybody just makes assumptions and there are no natural check-in points. Like if you're, if you're dating mm. someone, even if you're both bad communicators, oh, at, at some point, at some yeah. point you have to be like, well, my lease is up. Like, what are we doing? Or, Hey, are we seeing other people? Like there are just, there's a vocabulary for that. There is an entire like set of rules and expectations that just like does not exist in friendship at all. And so when mm. conflict comes, you are both confronted with the fact that nobody has ever stated their desire out loud and their wants out loud. Mm. And you mm-hmm. are both mm-hmm. completely unmoored. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, we never, for a person who, I mean, we spent so much time together and the idea that we would never have had like a, what do you need conversation? Like a true, like, what do you need conversation? until it was an emergency it was just too much and i think that you know if he wants to do the work to try to make things better i am willing to do it um i i would love to do it i would love to have a healthy relationship i mean it's funny because i mean i would never have characterized my relationship with this person as unhealthy i didn't realize it was unhealthy until it was revealed to be that way And I think that, you know, with all my really close friendships, there is a moment of reckoning about what kind of what kind of individual person you are and then what kind of person you are as an individual in a relationship with another person. Right. And I've had a couple of those and they have been very, very, very important for the um, the rehabilitation of a certain aspect of the friendship and a just a you know uh, an understanding that this is what I want to go forward, and this is how we should treat each other. This is how I expect to be treated by you. Um, 
but it isn't really a thing that you that naturally occurs, right? It's a thing that like sometimes circumstances have to make happen. Yeah, because I mean, we're just not taught that that is the way that you talk to a friend. It sounds almost loony when I say that to you, you know, to be like, hi, like what? Like, <laughs> hi, Wesley, you're my friend. Like, what do you want? What do you need? Like, how should I communicate with you? Like, what is your expectation if we have a breakdown with another mutual friend of ours? Like what? You know what I mean? Like. It sounds very loony, but if you are, you know, it's because of the ways that we devalue friendship. I'm like, these are really important Mm -hmm, platonic mm -hmm. bonds that we have. You know, Anne and I write about the fact that, like, we go to therapy together. Like, we go to a couples counselor. Mm. And it's not something Mm. that we have Mm -hmm. told a lot of people until now. Because it sounds really, Mm. it sounds really like, whoa, like you two are so far gone that you need to go to therapy. Why are you even friends? And and that's not what's going on. It's like, no, like we needed help because we are two strong personalities who don't know how to communicate with each other. And if we hadn't had that intervention, we probably would not be friends today, you know, and just, and just thinking about how there's so little infrastructure for repairing these kinds of bonds, right? Like, Parents and children, there's like books about that. Um, couples, there's like also there's an entire cottage industry that wants to take your money. But if it's friends, you're just allowed to fade away from each other's lives. And that to me is really wild. Yeah, I mean, Jenna and I, Jenna Wortham and I talk a lot about, um, I mean, we do a lot of checking in and and expectation management and like just, you know, uh, are we happy with I mean, that, not so much explicitly are we happy with each mm-hmm. other, but like, how are we feeling and how are we doing? And, you know, I it is it is something that like is important to her. And I have brought that importance into my other relationships. Yeah. And um, it's been really, really useful. Like, I mean, I'm thinking as we're talking, like, who are some people I have to have a check in conversation with? And there's like at least there's at least two people who are very important to me that that I have to just like you know, have a, hey, uh, can I be doing better? Is there anything you need? Um, how do you feel? It's a different muscle um, to flex. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it, because because it requires vulnerability. It requires an acknowledgement that, like, that it requires a, a different vulnerability also that is, like, you have to be open to hearing things you don't want mm-hmm. to hear. And you have to be open to asking, you have to be open to being asked to do a kind of, emotional labor if it is indeed laborious and it can be but it's also necessary um you have to be open to to being called to do it you know to be taken up on your offer of 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 doing more being more like um and i think it's hard for people to do that i think it's scary for people to do it like how many people like how many americans i don't know i mean you know i'm sure the american uh Psychiatric Association has these numbers, but how many Americans are in therapy, right? How many people really, really, really want to do that work? And how many people want to do that work with people that they are in relationships with where like they think that because they're this person is someone they see all the time, they don't need to do any work because like, look, there she is. I mean, the obstacle, the obstacles are there. One is like access and cost. Like, you know, that's not something uh, that's not something that's like lost on us. But, you know, even as somebody who can can afford it, like doing this thing with my friend, it it has had like a real like, you know, it's like it definitely makes a dent in the bank account. Like, not going to lie. Sometimes I'm like, Woo, why can't we figure this out alone? And, you know, but it also like the 
the dent in the emotional bank, I was like, that is sometimes like the cost of that. I am, I still evaluate because it is really, 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 really hard to lay yourself bare um, for the people that you love. But there's, there's no mm-hmm. way around it. There is just no way around it. Yeah. If, you know, if the goal is side by side seats, you know, like at the retirement home, um, you got to do the work. <laughs> <laughs> you have to do the work. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, Wesley, thanks for being my friend. It's, I appreciate it. I thank you for this. Like, I feel like I should pay you. Um, um, you know what? <laughs> Two black people don't need to pay each other for <laughs> for the love we have for each other. But you know what? Our white friends should look at cutting us some checks. That's for sure. Uh, I'm W-S-L-Y-Y at <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. Wesley Morris forever and ever and ever and ever. What an honor and a pleasure to have him lay out some of these concepts in his own voice and words on our show. Like, a true pleasure. Before we go, we want to tell you about a few virtual events we are doing related to the book where you can join us from the comfort of your own social isolation zone and uh, hear us talk about the book. Um, and watch us on video. We will be in conversation with Glory Adam of Well Read Black Girl on August 6th and uh, Samita Mukhopadhyay of Teen Vogue on August 10th. And these events are in partnership with great independent bookstores and public libraries. You can find ticket info and RSVP to join us at bigfriendship.com slash events. We've also been on a lot of other podcasts lately, um, and we would love to hear you and we would love to have you tune into those shows as well. Um, most recently, you can catch us on It's Been a Minute with Sam Sanders, Death, Sex, and Money, and um, quite a few more. You can find links to our interviews, um, as well as excerpts from the book and other things like that at bigfriendship.com slash interviews. I will see you on the internet, Anne Friedman. I will also see you on the internet. You can find us many places on the internet. Callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, we're on all your faves. Subscribe, rate, review, you know the drill. You can call us back, leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. And you can buy our book, Big Friendship, anywhere you buy books. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. We have editorial support from Laura Bertacci. Producer is Jordan Bailey. This podcast is produced by Gina Delvac.